If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today you'll hear another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend in Chester. Coming to you from University of Chester historian Tim Grady, this talk looks at the experiences of German Jews in the First World War. Informed by research for his book, A Deadly Legacy, German Jews in the Great War, Tim reveals how Jewish people played a central role in the conflict and considers the conflict's multiple legacies. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction and uh, thank you to everybody for coming along today. It's, uh, it's quite exciting to speak to, in, such a, in front of such a large audience. I feel very honoured, so thank you. So, as has been said, what I'm going to speak about today is this history of German Jews and the First World War. And then to sort of dip in a bit as well into the legacy of the conflict, to think a bit about what happens at the war's end and into the early post-war years. Just, I mean, just as a way to try and illustrate some of the issues and some of the points I want to ponder here today, I've got one image I just want to share with you to start with. And that's this one here. So 
What we've got here is a war memorial, a quite a typical war memorial, typical of the post-First World War period. This one um, comes from the town of Görlitz, which is, if you think about today's Germany, it lies on the border with Poland, so in the eastern fringes of Germany. The memorial itself was put up in 1921, and it contains the names of 25 Jewish soldiers from this town that lost their lives in the conflict. Now, of course, there would have been hundreds more from Gerlitz who survived the war, who came home. But what we've got here are 25 names of those who, who perished, who died in the conflict. The memorial was in the town's main synagogue in quite a prominent position. And the, the Stahlhelm at the top there indicating service for Germany. Now, if you sort of zoom forward to the 30s, the memorial was in a very sad state. By the late 30s, it's thought to be about 37, 38, the memorial itself was destroyed. The frame remains, but all the names were chipped off, knocked out of it. The, the dedication was removed, although the memorial itself still stood in the synagogue. Now, it was... I mean, judging by the period, it's quite obviously destroyed by Nazi fanatics at, at the time. There is um, a more positive narrative with this in that in recent years, there's been big efforts in Görlitz to restore both the synagogue and the memorial within the synagogue. What they've done is they've, they've they decided in the end not to, to restore the actual memorial, but to put a new plaque below the destroyed version made out of glass that you can see here. And that was rededicated in 2016 as a, as a counter to the um, destroyed memorial. So everybody can once again see the names of the 25 soldiers who lost their lives in the First World War. I mention um, this example because I, I think it's, it's quite um, important, it's quite significant to illustrate a number of wider points relating to the history of German Jews in the conflict in the First World War. So... <coughs> What particular? So what does this memorial really reveal then about the experience of German Jews in the First World War? I think there's, yeah, four points really that stem from this that are worth mentioning that I'd like to share with you. The first of these is this memorial hints very much at the scale of Jewish participation. Because what we're dealing with here is one small town one fairly small Jewish community, yet we've got 25 war dead and we've got quite a large number of people who would have served. In total, there were almost 100,000 German Jews who wore the German military uniform in the First World War, both in the Air Force and um, in the military, the army, and some people at sea as well in the Navy. So almost 100,000. The memorial also hints a bit at the enormity of Jewish loss. Okay, we've got 25 soldiers who lost their lives here. But in total, it's, the estimates would say about 12,000 German Jews died fighting for Germany in the First World War. That's about the estimated number. 
the next thing it highlights is remembrance. People lost loved ones in the conflict. They had a need to remember them. And the German Jewish communities were no different to other Germans in this. People needed to mourn and think about their losses. And that memorial shows this. It's, a, it's an active attempt to remember and to think about those killed. And finally, what this really tells us about as well, of course, is the rise of anti-Semitism and then ultimately through to persecution. The, destru the destruction of this memorial highlights the fact that German Jews may have fought, may have died, may have lost their lives for Germany, but this offered no protection come the 1930s. It offered ultimately no protection from genocide, and that's, that's where this leads to. When historians have looked at this kind of history, this narrative that I've, I've sort of sketched out for you here, historians have tended to draw out, uh, I, I guess, a kind of straightforward narrative. What they've looked at and said is that German Jews, yes, were brave, patriotic, heroic in many cases, and that they lost their lives, sacrificed their lives for Germany. But then they're persecuted for their efforts. That's the kind of take that historians have often, often drawn from this, the narrative they've drawn out. And they're, they're absolutely right to do so, because that, this is true. This is precisely what happened. The only one slight difficulty, I think, with drawing out that direct narrative is that we lose something of the precise experiences of the Jewish communities within the war itself. We end up looking at German Jews and the German Jewish history very much as almost being the objects of other Germans, uh, not being participants in this history. What I want to do in this talk is to try and place German Jews back into the history of the First World War. So rather than having the First World War here, and German Jews here and slightly separate, I want to think about German Jews as being a part of the conflict. And that's, that's the aim of what I want to discuss. And if we're going to do that, we have to ask the question, well, okay, if German Jews were a part of the war, they were serving in the army, they were fighting in the conflict, what type of conflict were they actually involved in? What was Germany's First World War, basically? And this is where it gets slightly tricky because Germany's First World War was particularly brutal. It was particularly horrific. It was particularly destructive conflict. The war that all Germans were involved in was a war, a, effectively a total war that involved home front in a big way, as well as the, the front lines. It was a war that ended up with the economy being subjugated for military ends. It was a war that involved, to some extent, annexations and exploitation of occupied territory. It's a war that involved slave labour. It's a war that involved 
um, exploitation in some extent of non-Germans as well. My point here is that the Jewish communities, as with other Germans, were drawn into this conflict. They had no choice. They were part of this brutal conflict. So what I'm trying to do is to restore German Jews to the wider narrative of Germany's war, Germany's First World War. And that's a difficult narrative. It's not an easy narrative. It's a very difficult narrative. So I'm going to try and show some parts of this. And in doing so, we'll be making reference to uh, discussions I've, I've, I've gone into more deeply in my book. <coughs> I'm going to try and go through this in a kind of chronological fashion. So we start at the start and we get to the end, you know. Um, but I'm going to try and pitch a few questions as I go through as well, just to try and pick on the main, some of the main aspects I think we should be aware of. Now, the, the first question we really need to ponder is, look, if this was a really such a destructive and horrible and brutal conflict, why on earth did German Jews support it? Why did they get involved in it? Why were they a part of this conflict, this First World War? That's the first question I think one has to ponder. Well, which one should make clear from the start that not all German Jews, not all members of the Jewish communities were supportive of this conflict at all. When war started, many people were scared, many people were afraid, many people were fearful, just as any other Germans. And indeed, in the final weeks of the July crisis, a number of German Jewish politicians were very prominent in trying to stop this war. They could see a war coming and they were trying to stop it. They were trying to um, hold back the forces that were gathering across Europe. So Hugo Hasse, for example, he was joint head of the SPD, Social Democratic Party of Germany at that time. And he was involved with meetings with others in Brussels. <coughs> and trying to get European socialists together to stop the conflict. Or another prominent SPD politician, Oskar Korn, he was, he was involved in some of the street protests across Germany, saying, look, we want peace, we do not want war. So there's a good number of German Jews who were trying to stop conflict, trying to stop war in 1914. But... When war was eventually declared, the narrative starts to change somewhat. It's no longer a case of trying to stop it. Events are gathering. Um, it can no longer be stopped. One has to accommodate themselves to it somehow. So once war's declared, you get a number of very prominent declarations of support from the Jewish communities. So the main... Jewish newspapers, including the Zionist one here, put out calls to say, look, German Jews, sign up, serve, fight, back the conflict. We are a part of Germany and we will do this. Um, there's synagogue services held in all the main cities. The one in Berlin, synagogue services held 
to offer support for the war and the protection of the troops. They have to hold it several times in Berlin just to get the crowds in. It's all a kind of sign of, gives a public sign of support, if anything. And then in the memoirs or testimonies of a lot of German Jews from later, they recall rushing down to volunteer, to serve, to, to down to the recruiting stations and so on and so forth. And typical then would be somebody here like Willi Liermann, who's there he is on his horse, galloping off to the front, ready to fight for Germany. So all of these actions give the impression of enthusiasm, give, it, give this impression of backing the war. We don't know if Liermann was really scared or frightened or worried as he departs, but it gives the impression of the Jewish communities backing this. There were, in many respects, quite good reasons why the German Jewish communities may have wanted to back the conflict, or may have found reason to back the conflict, at least. One was because of who the enemy was, and I'm thinking here specifically of Russia. Now, Tsarist Russia had been had treated its Jewish populations in an absolutely appalling fashion. Anti-Semitism was rife in Russia at this time. There'd been numerous pogroms um, the early 20, during the early 20th century. Russian or Jews under, under Russian control, under Tsarist Russia, had suffered years of persecution. So the fact that Germany is now going to war against Russia was a reason to back this, support this. We could get revenge on the Russians. A second very important reason why the Jewish communities and members of the Jewish communities may have been willing to go along with this war and to back it was because there was a big promise of unity wrapped up in the conflict. So all Germany's now at war. The, the nation needs to be defended. And if the German Jews, the German Jewish communities demonstrate that they're going to help defend the country, it puts them within a wider community. And it, so it's a, a sign of protection for them, defence. Defending Germany means defending themselves and demonstrating their loyalty to the nation and proving that they themselves are also Germans. What encapsulated this was a, a talk or a, a speech given by the Kaiser right at the start of the conflict. At the start of the conflict, the Kaiser gave a speech to the German people in which he said, I no longer recognise parties, I only recognise Germans. So we're all Germans together, basically. We, we're, it's about unity. And the great um, German-Jewish artist, Max Liebermann, he captured this here in August, late August 14. He did this sketch. There's the Royal Palace in Berlin, the Schloss. Um, and it was from here that the Kaiser gave this declaration of not, no longer recognising divisions, but just recognising Germans. And this mass of people below, all there, and that represented, you know, all us Germans are together. And the German Jewish communities are part of this. So it was, the war was a unifier. That's what was hoped. 
And then one has to also remember this was a war of defense. That's how it was pitched in Germany, a war of defense. And if Germany's under attack and it needs to be defended, then there were good patriotic reasons to go to war. And that was also stressed within the Jewish communities. So the liberal, uh, liberal Jewish newspaper here said, we German Jews are indelibly connected with heart and soul, with life and limb, with blood and possessions to our German fatherland. We will go out and defend our country. Of course we will. So these, are, these were reasons for the Jewish community to, to back the conflict. Quite quickly, though, this turns into uh, quite a difficult war. It becomes quite quickly a total war a war that involves the home fronts as well as the front lines, a war in which the home front is there for military need to keep the war going. So we have to ask ourselves next, really, how were German Jews affected by this turn to total war? Well, it, in many respects, they have little choice. This is a war that is increasingly making these demands of everybody. And the Jewish communities have to thus get involved in a big way at home. And they do so through things such as setting up soup kitchens. The Berlin Jewish community will set up soup kitchens for those without food or suffering in the war. Um, they turn over communal buildings to be used for hospitals to treat the wounded. Elsewhere in other cities, um, Cologne, I think, they opened up some of their buildings to help refugees stranded by the war. So at home, everybody's starting to get, get involved. They are back in this conflict. They're supporting the conflict. And the war is becoming more total. Some of the biggest interventions, though, came from some prominent German-Jewish industrialists. And perhaps the most um, prominent at this time was Walter Rathenau here, who... He was the head of the big electronics firm AEG. His father had founded it a century before. The AEG company, he was the head of. What he realised, and there's a massively interesting history with Rathenau, but at this point, what he realised at this point was Germany didn't have enough raw materials to survive a long conflict. It, it, if the conflict would go on, it would suffer from a lack of um, copper um, and other important materials, particularly rubber as well. So he made the proposal in first weeks of the war to Erich von Falkenhayn, the Prussian war minister, uh, ministry, and suggested, look, we need to do something about this. Let's get together. Let's sketch out a plan forward, a route forward for this. And what they devised in conversation was that they would set up a new organisation that Ratana would head up, and this organisation would take control of all or a lot of raw materials within Germany, and it would be in charge of distributing them where they'd most be needed. So this was a kind of militarization of the economy now. He got a really great desk in the war ministry for this. And in his diary, he says, yeah, I could sit down on the desk and look out the window 
and I could see the gardens, and it was, it was brilliant. But what it means is for him, he was effectively, he'd made it. He was part of the, 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 the upper echelons of the state now. But it has a knock-on effect on the German economy. In other ways, there were, German Jews made important contributions as well. So in the field of propaganda, for example, <coughs> propaganda efforts clearly crucial in a, in, a, in a conflict. One example here from this guy, Ernst Lissauer, possibly not his, I, I don't know, possibly not the most flattering photo sketch of him, but nonetheless, Lissauer made, he's a poet, and he made quite significant interventions. He got really behind the war to start with. And he wrote a, a lovely little poem called The Hymn of Hate Against England. It's quite well known. <laughs> but it had, um, well, it's quite a long thing, but this is a sample of what it is. We have one and only hate. We love as one, we hate as one. We have one foe and one alone, England. And it would go on like that for a bit. But it was quite, it was quite popular in Germany at the time, and it was, it was reproduced on postcards and in the newspapers, and you get little souvenirs with it and all this. So it's, it's quite a prominent little thing. It, it might have had a bit of success in Germany, but propaganda efforts more broadly weren't overly successful because the, the British punch responded with this, which was a study of a Prussian household having its morning hate. And it, it, everybody's having a bit of a hate than the, the, the father and the, the mother and the, even the dogs having a hate, yeah. So it kind of got a bit ridiculed more widely, but nonetheless, it was a... It was a, a, an attempt at uh, some propaganda interventions here. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So bring me on to um, a third. This is, see, I'm trying to go through some key aspects of the German the way the, the war effort was for, the, um, for Germany. The big question that comes up all the way through for the Germans was about the nature of war that's being fought. Is this a war to defend Germany and defend its borders, 
and a lot of people believed it was? Or was this a war that would only end when Germany's expanded, got bigger, and is going to end the war as a greater Germany? And there was that internal debate going on. Why are we fighting this and what is it, is it about? But discussions about this war being a war about expansion, annexation, growing Germany, went all the way through the conflict, really. And German Jews, as with any Germans, had to respond to this and had to get involved with this because it kept being discussed. So to, to just try and think a bit about responses to this, well, it was mainly the German right, political right, that are pushing for expansion. Heinrich Klaas here of the Pan-German League, he was one of the most prominent proponents for expansion, and he, he could imagine at various times having colonies in the Baltic or further east, taking colonies within Africa, but getting a much, much larger Germany out of the war. For the German Jewish communities, they were never interested or very few German Jews were ever interested in expansion or annexations for annexation itself. It was simply pointless. But many people could see some logic to the idea of greater German control in Eastern Europe. They could see some logic there. And the reason for that is because the further the German army moved eastwards and advanced eastwards, it took control of more and more East European Jews. So further you go eastwards, you, you encounter a lot of East European Jews who had suffered really badly under Tsarist Russia. Now they're no longer under Tsarist Russia control, they're under German control. And it's at this point that people can see some crossing, cross-fertilisation of ideas and aims and objectives. So these European Jews that people encounter, the German army encounters as it goes eastwards, were very different in their cultural backgrounds and everyday lives to their co-religionists in Germany or in Central Europe. And this, this is from a, a photo album of a, a German Jewish soldier. And he, he just took photos of some of the Jewish um, people of Eastern Europe that he met as he went eastwards. But it was quite typical of a lot of people's lives in Eastern Europe. A lot of the Jewish, Jewish population there were involved in street, street businesses, selling goods on the streets. Also, often more orthodox in their religious beliefs too. But... What was crucial is that these people in Eastern Europe had suffered for years under Russian anti-Semitism, persecution, restriction in their life, chances and choices. So when the German military move eastwards and advance eastwards, suddenly they control all these people. They're now controlling them. Um, and it's there that opportunities open up. And some members of the Jewish communities can see advantages here. They can see that this could be advantageous for us as well as for the military. 
But if they're going to sell this or they're going to make this happen, they've got to sell, they've basically got to sell something to the German military. If we're going to protect and help all these East European Jews and save them from the Russians, we need to convince the German military that there's something in it for them too, you know. So the way that they try and do this is they try and sell... There's a small group of German Jews who try to sell the East European Jewish populations as effectively a friendly face in the East. They'd be there, they could help the German army, they could help the military, they'd be supportive. Unlike all the other East Europeans, these East European Jews would be on your side, they would help you. And they made this case on the basis that Yiddish was widely spoken language amongst East European Jews, and they said, look, Yiddish is effectively medieval German. So look, they, these people are almost German. They'd be, it'd be very useful. Culturally, they're also very German as well, you know? So again, they could help us. Two Zionist, German Zionist leaders at the time made a long journey to Eastern Europe, and they met with the two most important generals, basically in, in the war, but at that point on the Eastern campaigns, they met with Hindenburg, and they met with Ludendorff in the Eastern headquarters. They sat down with the generals and they did this big sales pitch. They were wined, they were dined, and they talked about how expanding Germany in the East would also serve our purposes. Um, as the war goes on, the reality of all this proves that the German military is not really going to help the Eastern European Jews in any shape or form, and the relationship starts to break down somewhat. But it still becomes an aspiration for some people throughout. People like Davis Trich here, who's another, who was another fairly important German Zionist, he continued to push for this relationship all the way through until 1918. He's publishing brochures and pamphlets and everything, saying, rescue these European Jews and this will promote Germanness in Eastern Europe. But anyway, we must move on. And this moves, moves us on to one of the really crucial questions for the German war experience, the history of the First World War, and that is of anti-Semitism. So how widespread was anti-Semitism during the First World War? Obviously, obviously, this is a crucial question, not just for the First World War, it's a crucial question for German history and the trajectory of German history, but also of European history more generally. However you look at it, anti-Semitism increased in Germany during the First World War. Anti-Semitism increased in Britain in the First World War too. But for our purposes, anti-Semitism increased in Germany. The longer the war goes on, the, the, the more anti-Semitism you can detect. Um, I think to understand really why anti-Semitism increases as the war goes on, we need to think about the conditions, the suffering within Germany, I suppose, particularly during the, the, the latter period of the conflict. 
because anti-Semitism increases against the backdrop of massive suffering. We've got mass death. We've got thousands upon thousands of people wounded, hurt, um, suffering from illness as well in the conflict. We've got loved ones absent. We've got lives disrupted. But what was perhaps really crucial for the German war effort was the lack of food as well. Germany starved during the First World War. The German people starved during the First World War. By early 1915, you've got the first rationing in place in Germany with crucial goods. Then week on week, month on month, rationing increases. And by, it's by 1916, Queues are just typical everywhere. This is uh, Franconia, Erlangen, University City. But people 6 a.m. in the morning are just staked around here, queuing for butter. And then you've got the horrific winter of 1617 when turnips become basically the staple diet. And recipe books are all about what you could do with exotic meals with a turnip or <laughs> how you can turn turnip into coffee or anything. But... It's all about suffering, really. But the question, what people are asking themselves then is, the war hasn't ended. We're getting worse. Things are getting worse and worse. So who is to blame for this? Where do we point the finger of blame? And everyone is blaming everyone. Bavarians are blaming Prussians, and Prussians are blaming Bavarians, and urban population blames the rural population for hoarding all the food, um, People blame the elites. Other people blame the working classes. Everybody blames the people from Alsace and Lorraine and, and so on and so forth. But one of the prominent targets, the Jewish population and the Jewish community, and they get blamed on a couple of levels. They get blamed for being... People say that they're profiteering, which is nonsense. People say that the Jewish community is shirking. These are the two accusations that get thrown, that they're shirking, they're not doing their bit. And this really comes to a head during, the, during 1916. Food shortages, the, the horrific battles of 1916 as well. But during 1916, the war ministry in Berlin starts to get lots of anonymous letters being written and sent into it. And these letters have a not always very subtle anti-Semitic tone about them, but they say things such as, ooh, just thought I'd let you know, I was in the local department store and I saw a very healthy young man, seemed to be doing very well for himself, and I just wondered if he might be recruited in, and he just happens to be Jewish, or something like this. But it's building up a narrative of people are not doing their bit, and these letters filter into the war ministry. And the war ministry ignores them for a long time, doesn't do anything about it. But then, at some point, there's a bit of change um, at the top in terms of ministers. And they decide they're going to do something. So they say, what we're going to do, great solution. We will count how many Jewish soldiers are fighting in the German army. And that is what they do. On... 1st of 
November or roughly around this date, all the commanders in the field are told, you have to count how many Jews are serving under you, how many, uh, just remind myself, how many were volunteers, how many have fallen, how many have been awarded the first Iron Cross first class and so forth. And they had to fill in with numbers all the way through under all these different categories and return it to Berlin. Now, this is a remarkable event. This is an army counting its own soldiers to look for loyalty. They're not counting how many Catholic soldiers or how many Protestant soldiers are fighting. This is clearly an anti-Semitic act. And there's a big response, understandably, from the Jewish communities about this. There's lots of protests and so forth. But... Ultimately, it doesn't change very much for a lot of the soldiers fighting at the front. Some of the army rabbis who were serving to support the Jewish soldiers said, the men we saw just ignored this. They were annoyed, but they ignored it because they still were risking life, they're still risking death, and the war was continuing. It didn't change things for them. Um... So the war continues nonetheless. I'm going to just come to this final big point, the legacies of the conflict for German Jews. So what were these legacies? So the war ends November 1918. The armistice is signed. These years of fighting gradually, suddenly, not gradually, I suppose they suddenly stop. Um, there's no doubting by the war's end that German Jews have made a full contribution. As I said at the start, almost 100,000 serve, 12,000 die. Important and significant efforts from, the, from people like Rathenau, who organised the raw materials, the propaganda efforts and so on and so forth. All of this has helped Germany maintain the war and to fight the war in the way that it could. But despite all these efforts, despite this full contribution, at the war's end, or the, the months, the weeks, months, years even following the war, German Jews are quickly blamed, increasingly blamed for defeat and for the way that the war turns out. One Jewish soldier, when he returned home, he came back from the front, eventually after, with all these luggage and whatever else and horrific experience of the war he gets handed this flyer when he steps off the train in the station and this was a flyer that circulated quite widely with an anti-semitic poem on it the jews in the world war which had lines such as their smirking faces are everywhere not just not when the trenches are there and so on other flyers posters things being circulated blame jews for profiteering, for international links, for disloyalty, and so on and so forth. Um, in the local, yeah, in the local press, this is from Bonn, you also get a lot of little snippets of implied criticism or open anti-Semitism. There was this um, flag factory in Bonn, which had a German-Jewish businessman owned. And in the newspapers of Bonn, it kept getting these letters dropped in or little rumours spread in saying, this flag factory 
just as the war had ended, was delivering Belgian flags to Belgium so that the Belgians could put them on all their buildings to celebrate victory. It was uh, obviously an attack on this man and on this business. He eventually responds himself in the newspaper. It's all been played out in the newspaper. And he says, look, this is nonsense. Why would I do this? Why would I want to do this? And there's a ban on German goods leaving the borders. So I couldn't have done it even if I wanted to do it. So, you know. But this is typical of the kind of attacks that start to build. Um, so I suppose finally, to explain such attacks on German Jews, how do we explain how things end up? Well, there's, there's multiple layers to this. But I think ultimately a lot of it is, particularly by the war's end, is about the mismatch, the mismatch between the promises of war um, and the ultimate realities of it, the mismatch between what was promised and what happens, the mismatch between how the war was fought and what we end up with at the war's end. So the realities of the war ends, the war's end for Germany are defeat, having to sue for surrender, humiliating, a revolution, and the Kaiser's disposed. 1919, the Treaty of Versailles, and so on and so forth. Loss of territory, loss of power. So basically, by the war's end, there's very little to celebrate. There's very little excitement. The war's ended, yes, but where's the joy in this? It's missing. And if you contrast that with some of the defining aspects of the war, what people initially thought the war was about and how the war was fought, then you've got this big mismatch between reality and what the war was actually like during the conflict. So it started with this supposed enthusiasm and excitement, a belief that Germany could be unified and united, that Germany would come together. But now, at the war's end, Germany is defeated and divided. All those people who die fighting for Germany, Germany loses almost two million men in the First World War. All those people who die. During the war, you could explain that away as defence, protection of the, the country. But by the war's end, what have they died for? What was this war about? The sacrifices people had made at home, the total war, the totality of this conflict, everybody had had to suffer, everybody had lost things, everybody had suffered from food shortages, but what were these sacrifices now for? Calls for annexations, demands for a bigger Germany, that was all about coming out of the war with a much more powerful and a greater Germany. We end the war with a smaller, shrunken Germany. So again, what had the war been about? And it's this mismatch, I think, that causes the problems for German Jews. People demand an explanation for the mismatch. It leads to questions of blame. And through the 20s, various people get blamed from military leaders, the home front politicians, socialists. But increasingly, the blame lands on German Jews. They're the ones that stabbed the army in the back. It's their hand on the dagger. Um, and the problem during the 20s is 
once a society is badly divided, it's very hard to bring it back together again. Not thinking about today. And um, once powerful myths develop, they're also hard to shake. And that is what German Jews suffer from. The horror of this, of course, is that German Jews had thought they'd died, they'd sacrificed themselves in the war. They'd helped to shape the war experience. They'd contributed to the early enthusiasm. They'd laid and helped to lay foundations for total war, discussed annexations, made massive sacrifices themselves. But by the, war end, by the war's very end, these characteristics are turned against the Jewish communities. They're no longer part of this shared war experience. They're struggling to maintain themselves within it. And increasingly, they're pushed to the very margins of the memory of the war and ultimately of German society as well. And that's where I should leave things. So thank you for listening. Thank you very much. That was Tim Grady. His book, A Deadly Legacy, German Jews and the Great War, is available now, published by Yale. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. (laughs) 